Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Peristyle Podcast, the Trojan Blast recruiting podcast where we talk all about USC football recruiting with the man who knows probably the most about USC football recruiting on the entire planet, Gerard Martinez, uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst, joining us via Skype. What's going on, Gerard? How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, that time of year, the most wonderful time of the year. Just not for me or anybody who actually tries to follow these kids when it comes to recruiting. <laughs> and actually, I don't think it's the most wonderful time for the recruits or the coaches that are actually recruiting them. It seems like the process at this point gets so stressful that everybody hates it. Everybody's just waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel. And right now, we're trying to see if that light is actually a good light or maybe it's a freight train headed our way. It could be a freight train. It could be a, a light that opens up to greener pastures. But we don't know. And there's the last week. It's going to be a lot of stuff going on. One week until signing day. Not sure if we'll get a podcast in before signing day next week, but we'll uh, we'll try, or otherwise we'll do one afterwards and stuff. We'll, I'm sure we'll have Lanny Julius on again and let him break down the class. That's always a lot of fun. Um, but we have a lot of questions, Gerard, as you can imagine, uh, leading up to who's USC going to get? What's the percentage of this guy? What is it? So we'll try to answer them all. We're not going to be able to get to every single one, but uh, there's a lot going on, obviously. Uh, it's a very fluid situation. And uh, stick on the peristyle. Gerard's dropping knowledge bombs every 10 minutes or so. <laughs> so um, that's the place to go. We'll, we'll try to keep you up to date here on the podcast, but you know, go to uscfootball.com. That's where you're going to get all the most update, up-to-date information out there. But Gerard, let's, uh, let's jump in. We got a question from Lamont uh, on the voicemail. He did this uh, on peristylepodcast.com. Let's go to Lamont. Hi, Ryan. This is Lamont from Pondo, California. And this question is for Gerald. Do you think that SC gets Fitz, Benedos, Matthew Thomas, and Quinton Powell? And also, do you think that Ramsey stays with USC? Um, thanks again for the time. You guys are doing great. Fight on. Well, first things first, I have to say that Lamar kind of sounds like Chris Hawkins, actually, which I kind of funny strikes me as odd. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why it is, but when I first heard him talk there, I thought, wow, this sounds like uh, Chris Hawkins when uh, I talked to him and uh, he started talking about the recruiting process. Uh, so uh, maybe Lamont has a relation or something with uh, with Chris. And Chris, obviously Gerald, being on top of recruiting like he is, I don't think he'd be calling in to ask me. He'd be uh, tweeting those guys and asking them directly uh, where they were leaning with USC. As far as what I think – uh, with uh, all those guys, it, it's it's tough. You know, it's one of those things that these guys are all going to have their in-home visits at this point. Um, they're going to have the head coaches coming in this week. Uh, with Vanderdose, he's still got an official visit set for Alabama. He still looks like he's going to take that official visit. And it'll be interesting to kind of see how his kind of looking at the process in hindsight uh, starts to stack these schools up and where we start to hear maybe little things about him leaning. Right now, the talk is with him in UCLA. Uh, that's what we hear the most. We hear that, um, you know, there's been a lot of rumors about him being a silent commitment uh, to USC, or excuse me, to UCLA, not to USC. And um, he took that uh, official visit to USC a couple weeks ago, and it definitely seemed like USC kind of got back into the picture. Um, but UCLA, definitely still a big player for him. Um, you know, the, the defensive line coach there is very tight with his trainer, kind of his off-season defensive line coach uh, in Auburn, California. Um, Angus McClure, who's the defensive line coach for UCLA, is actually from Auburn, California. So he knows a lot of people there. That's going to be an advantage for UCLA, especially as you get down to the nitty-gritty towards signing day and actually getting these kids and getting the communication from them directly is difficult. You have somebody around that's always got their phone on for you, and <laughs> you can get the kid on the phone. That becomes that much more important because that's that last word that every coach at this point uh, during the recruiting cycle is trying to get. Everybody wants that last word. Um, now, you've got all these other guys like Matthew Thomas. You've got Quentin Powell, uh, the two Florida linebackers. I think USC 
at least splits uh, one out of two there. Uh, it's going to be tough to get both of those guys. I think specifically with Matthew Thomas, that's still really up in the air. He's got his official visit to Georgia set for this weekend. There's kind of a tug of war behind the scenes with a lot of sources saying that it's really between Florida State and Miami. Now, James Cole, uh, Coley, who was at um, Florida State as a quarterback's coach, Originally, a lot of ties with the Miami program. He recruited Dade County for Florida State. He has gone on and become an offensive coordinator at Miami now. Uh, so a lot of people felt like that gave Miami kind of a big advantage that, you know, the local school, uh, now they've got the recruiter, the lead recruiter for him from Florida State at their school kind of, you know, gave them the advantage. Thomas denies that, says it doesn't really matter if uh, James Coley is at Miami or not. He still likes Florida State. A lot of people feel like, uh, his relationship with the Florida State coaches that are still there, and more importantly, um, I think you know it, his mother's relationship with Jimbo Fisher is evidently going to play a big role. But Florida State has had a lot of turnover in their coaching staff, and you've seen that reflected in the recruiting process and their commitments because they've had a lot of guys decommit here in the last few days. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. There's a dynamic there between Florida State and Miami. USC's kind of a dark horse there, and I think they have a chance but it's definitely one of those kind of trying to sneak under the radar and and get him kind of you know out of the middle of nowhere and and there's certainly not a team that I think is on the mind of everybody when they talk about Matthew Thomas and the different uh, schools that he has to choose from USC is certainly not the top of many people's list in terms of predictions uh, Quentin Powell's just down to Florida and USC now I think people feel like because he's got Leonard Williams out here and Leonard Williams has had so much success that USC has a legitimate shot but Florida's going all out I mean Florida's going all out for Quentin Powell they're going all out for Jalen Ramsey. Uh, they've been beat in consecutive years uh, by USC on players, whether it be Nelson, Nelson Aguilar or Leonard Williams. There's been a few different guys that USC has been able to get from them. So they're really going hard to try to make sure that they get uh, a few of these guys and kind of get back into it with the Florida players that they're going head-to-head against with USC. You can't be a local school, in-state school, and keep losing players to an out-of-state school like USC. Granted, it's much easier and it hurts you less as a program, I think, to lose a guy to USC as opposed to Florida State. So when we talk about Jalen Ramsey, that's kind of a, you know, Florida State, Florida, and USC. For months we've heard, you know, Jalen Ramsey's going to commit to Florida. Jalen Ramsey, next week, he's going to decommit from USC. He's going to go to Florida. There were two different occasions which, you know, not just the fan base, but actually some of the writers that were out there were talking like Jalen Ramsey was going to decommit from USC. Once was during the season, once was just the other week, where it was actually on a Friday, people were predicting that he was going to decommit from USC and go to Florida. So it was one of those things that, you know, this has been coming up a time and time again, and it's been inaccurate. You kind of wonder, okay, you know, there's a lot of smoke there, but this smoke has supposedly had a spark behind it, and every time there's a spark, there is no fire. So we're kind of hard to figure out if this is just assumptions made uh, based on, you know, he's got a teammate there from Brentwood Academy uh, that's at Florida, that's that's committed to Florida, Max Starver, you know, Max Starver being Jalen's teammate, they're not really that close, but being that, you know, they're same high school and they run maybe in the same circles that, you know, Max Starver's kind of the guy that's feeding into all of this. Um, I tend to think that, you know, the coaching staff at Florida, though, has probably given some confidence to this, and there's some reason that there's a lot of talk about him in Florida. Florida State kind of came in late because Jeremy Pruitt, who was at Alabama and recruiting uh, Jalen Ramsey, uh, went over and now is a defensive coordinator at Florida State. So they kind of got in after the Army All-American Bowl, and there's some connection there with Jalen's dad. Um, I think uh, Jeremy Pruitt is like a, a, a roommate uh, in college with somebody that uh, knows uh, Jalen's dad or something to that extent. So it was one of those things that that helped kind of build a little bit of a, a bridge into kind of getting in the ear of Jalen. And now – Florida State people are very confident that Jalen Ramsey is going to go to Florida State. Uh, it's really hard to figure out what's what. He's got all three coaches from those schools coming in to officially visit, or excuse me, to, to in-home visit with him this week. You've got, uh, I think, Bill, uh, Will Muschamp came in uh, on Monday. I think USC's in Tuesday or maybe possibly Wednesday. And it sounds like, or you know what, I'm totally wrong on that. Let me go back. Uh, Florida State, I think, came in first on a Monday or Tuesday, and then USC is supposed to come in. And from what I hear, Florida actually is the last school that's supposed to come in and do the last in-home visit with him. 
And that's a little bit, again, one of those things that I think a lot of people are going, okay, what does that mean? You know, why, why is Florida getting the last word with Jalen when he's a USC commit? So that's, that's a tough one to read. And, and right now, I mean, there's just, I think just with that fact, a lot of people are not feeling real good with USC's chances. But, you know, he's, like his dad said many times, he's a commit till he's not a commit. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's so many guys that you still have on the board, you know, five, maybe six guys you're looking at. Uh, to list every guy in every scenario, obviously, you know, we can go in and talk about it, you know, for the whole podcast, basically, that would be it. Eddie Vanderdose and his situation and, you know, visiting um, Alabama this weekend. And, and you've got the Matthew Thomas situation. You've got Quinn Powell. You've got these guys that are still there. It's just going to be one of those things where, you know, USC's got to be able to project. They've got to have a good feel of who's in, who says they're in, but maybe he's not really in. And if there's going to be a plan B, can they get that guy to, if he's decommitted, or excuse me, if he's, if he's committed to another school, how quickly can they get him to decommit from another school and be able to come over to USC like they did with Davion Shelton last year who was committed to Oregon State? Um, do they have one of those you know, kind of guys in their back pocket? And if there's a guy that's just out there that's uncommitted, can they bring him over and get him you know, on a visit or something where he feels comfortable enough to commit to USC all the way you know, just with a few days till sign day? It, it's really going to be tough. And it's, you know, we kind of knew that coming in after all those July – commitments and everybody going okay the class is done in july we knew that this was going to happen and this was going to unravel it's just i think to the effect that you know when you lose that many games and you have a seven and six season and, and people are disappointed it obviously emphasizes things and it puts more things on, on a negative connotation but quite frankly i think usc could have won 10 games and you still would have seen some of these guys taking visits and maybe still wavering because it's just that time of year and you're going to get a lot of coaches you know saying things and getting in kids ears and they're going to start to second guess all right. Uh, we're probably going to go to rapid fire after that one question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, like I said, it was kind of an open-ended question with the main guys that basically everybody wants to know about. Right. Uh, no problem. Okay. Well, let's go to Tarion. He says, Bigelow's uh, enrollment had me thinking about your input uh, regarding the difficulties of recruiting from the largest population of the big, talented defensive lineman recruits in the South and Southeast. When we get our 25 per year scholarships back, would it make any sense to, in addition to still going after the elite defensive lineman, to also recruit a few three-star defensive linemen from that region who would start out bigger and who could then be developed over a three-year period to be good players by their redshirt junior year? That's from Tarion. I would actually say that I think it makes more sense to go after guys locally who are not bigger and because you have more scholarships, you have more time to be able to develop guys. You know, when you have a class that's as small as this class now, and you're talking about 17 guys, 18 guys, uh, next class is going to be 15, you really need some impact players, really top-end guys, and, and there are going to be more of them in ratio to the amount of commits that you have. Um, you have to be able to hit the home run on more guys to the ratio of the overall class. Whereas if you have 25, you get 30 you know, guys in a class, you're able to have uh, a little more leeway and you can take waivers on guys a little more. So I, I think regionally, actually, because I think when you're looking at the southeast and you're looking at uh, you know, the west, and you know, talking about Bigelow, he's actually from the northeast, so he's even from neither. But when you're looking at the, you know, what guys are like and, and the kids in terms of uh, physically, you know, their development. The Southeast, those guys are coming out and they're just bigger. Uh, they're more physically developed early on. The guys out West, they will get there, but they will get there in a couple years. It's just one of those things where, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's in the water, I don't know if it's in the birth certificates, there's something there that the kids are just not as physically developed and advanced mature-wise as the kids down in the Southeast. So when the Southeast, I think USC has to go hard in these classes that they've had just in the past couple of years because they need those guys to come in early. They need Bigelow to be able to be a guy that could come in early. They needed you know, Leonard Williams to come in real early and be able to play right away. I think as you get more bodies and you start to get into that 25 class and then the next year it might be more, whatever, that's one of those things where I think you can take more guys locally and build them up and, and take the guys that are like Chad Wheeler and go after Chad Wheeler who's you know, coming out of high school. He's like 255 pounds. And evidently he lost even more weight when he got to campus. And now you've seen him kind of build up. And now he's you know, 280, almost 285. 
So that's a guy that, you know, with time, he's going to be able to build his body up, and you can give him that time. You don't necessarily need him right away because you have other guys in that class that can be those guys that are the immediate impact players. So I think really, quite frankly, regionally, you can take more waivers and you can actually start to concentrate a little more on some guys that you may want, you know, especially on the defensive line and even the offensive line. All right, let's go to Melvin has a question. Will the recruitment of Nico Fala and uh, Khalil Rogers for the offensive line become crucial since they now lost Desmond Harrison to Arizona State? He said, without any recruits, what do you think the state of the offensive line is going to be in 2013? Does this mean that uh, USC will end up being having a weak point on the offensive line for several years without any recruits coming in this year? No, I mean, I think this year you could only take so many recruits for two reasons. One, obviously because of the numbers, but they did take five offensive linemen the year before. But two, because the quality of offensive linemen there, uh, just in terms of even locally, but just nationally, the offensive line class was not that great. 2013, not a great class for offensive linemen. Uh, 2012, great, great class for offensive linemen. So it's one of those things that, again, kind of goes into the question that I answered before, when you're going local and you're starting to look at the guys that are, you know, the three-star guys and even maybe two-star guys, um, you know, a guy like Sean Harlow, who's, you know, 6'4", uh, maybe in that 6'5 range, 260 pounds, he's a guy that you got to project a little bit with. you got to look at and go, okay, great bloodlines. You know, he can put on the weight. Uh, maybe he's a guy that could end up playing center or even tackle. He's versatile. But he's not a finished product, whereas – you know, when you're looking at these big guys in the East and in the South, those guys are more finished product. You're looking at those guys and you kind of see what they're going to be like in college, even when they're in high school. So I think it's one of those things that um, in terms of the class, that's really where you've got to kind of focus your, your efforts on and the amount of guys that you can get in in those classes always affects that. Okay, let's see. Kevin in South Orange County. Question for GMART. It seems clear last summer... Uh, that in this recruiting cycle, the defensive line was an absolute priority and appeared we were in great shape initially with Kenny now enrolled, Jason back on board, Tarodney, Prevo and Flux, and Eddie a possibility. Why have we been focusing on linebackers versus trying to get more defensive linemen on board from the long shots like Montrevious Adams, Sean Robinson, and the new potential long shots like uh, Eddie Vanderdose and Tarodney? Well, I wouldn't say that Tarodney or Vanderbilt are potential long shots. I mean, <laughs> Tarodney Prevo is still committed to USC, so he's not a long shot. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of talk out of Texas that he's going to go to Texas A&M. Uh, but USC is still recruiting him and still involved with him. Um, in terms of you know him taking those visits after he officially committed to USC, I think that's an issue that everybody kind of wants to know what's going on. But with USC going down there for his in-home visit, they had Ed Ergeron and they had Clancy Pendergast go down there uh, just uh, earlier this week. That says that USC is still awesome and they're still recruiting him. So and he's still committed to USC, so certainly wouldn't put him in the long shot range. And I wouldn't put Vanderdose in the long shot range either. Guys like Ashawn Robinson, um, you know, Montrevious Adams, yeah, definitely a little more of a long shot. But Montrevious Adams hasn't officially visited USC yet, and we don't know if he's going to officially visit this weekend. Uh, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like Auburn would be the school he's going to officially visit last. So that would be a long shot, obviously. If you get a kid that's not even been on campus, that's a long shot. Uh, with Ashawn with Robinson, a little less of a mo- – I think it would be more of a moderate long shot, I guess you would say, uh, just because he's been to campus. Uh, he likes USC, but there's that issue of his mom and, and leaving his family, and he's still committed to Texas. That's not a bad thing for USC. I think a lot of people look into that and say, well, that's you know not bad. If he wants to leave Texas and get away from Texas – then he should stay, you know, committed to USC or excuse me, committed to Texas. And then, you know, look at other schools like uh, Alabama or USC and make that switch at the last minute. So that local pressure is not on him until he's already signed. And then it's too late. And then, you know, there, there's not going to be any pressure because nobody's going to call him because he's already signed his letter of intent. That's the way those things tend to work. A lot of people think, you know, maybe that's the case with uh, Nico Fala. And Nico Fala's kind of not come out and said, I'm 100% USC, I'm shutting it down. He seems to continue to leave the door open for Washington, and you just wonder, well, is he just saying that he's still committed to USC because Washington has told him, hey, if you decommit from USC, it's just going to get crazier for you. USC is going to come after you that harder. 
that much harder. So just say you're committed to USC and just go ahead and decommit from USC on signing day. That's what happened with Pio Batuve, uh, the defensive lineman from Northern California last year. You know, he pretty much came back from his official visit to USC, didn't talk to anybody, was completely underground, and then bam, next thing you know on signing day, he goes to Washington. So that's one of those things that you, you, you're always trying to look for the angle and trying to figure out how these things are playing out. Uh, but as far as USC going after more defensive linemen and not linebackers, a, you've got the linebacker situation that's changed a little bit because the scheme's changed a little bit. You're running a 3-4. Now you have three down linemen and four linebackers. Now, granted, those four linebackers are going to be a little different. I think a guy like Jason Hatcher could play linebacker instead of being a defensive lineman. It's going to be a hybrid situation, so those guys are going to have to be able to stand up and put their hand down at the same time. Uh, but you're starting to look at guys a little differently in terms of their physical shape and you know who you want as an outside linebacker. I mean, Matthew Thomas, Tarani Prevo, those guys – are pretty good fits uh, as outside linebackers for a 3-4. You know, Prevo is actually, and I would say this even about Matthew Thomas, too small really to play defensive end in the 4-3, at least early on in their career. I mean, they got to put on a lot more weight to actually put their hand down. I think Thomas is good enough to play either or. He could play in a 4-3 as a weak side guy, as a Sam, and he could play in a 3-4 as, a, as an outside guy, as a weak side guy, or Sam, or, you know, that kind of buck position, which is one of those guys that's kind of a hybrid position. I think you could do either or with those guys. So, it, the scheme has changed maybe a little bit, and that's kind of changed the direction of, you know, we need a little more linebackers now because we're going to have more linebackers on the field. But also, they're, they're continuing to recruit Vanderdose and, and, you know, probably even Adams and Sean Robinson. They're still involved with all those guys. So they're still putting emphasis on them. It's one of those things is, you know, should they be going and giving offers to a guy like Derek Calloway? Should they be giving an offer to a guy like Keith Bryant, who's, uh, you know, from Miami, and Derek Calloway's from uh, Bradenton, Florida. But Derek Calloway, 6'3", 300-pound defensive tackle, um, who came out and was actually at the Rising Stars camp, you know, pretty good player and, and, and a guy that, uh, you know, didn't have a ton of offers was from California, actually went to Narbonne High School as a, as a freshman, that's a guy where you could say, well, maybe USC could give him a late offer, and he'd come and he'd be a guy that would be at least a body on the defensive line. That's one of those things that we actually wrote an ad-op piece just about USC's lack of offers and what that really means. Actions speak louder than words, I think, from both sides of the fence, whether you're talking about the way that the school is recruiting or what the kids are doing. Kids are going to say things. And they're going to, you know, okay, yeah, I'm committed to this school, what have you, but you never really know until signing day. And the same thing with the schools, you really have to look at the actions and what they're doing to really get a feel for, you know, kind of where the, the recruiting process is going with them and kind of where they are on the trail. And, you know, is USC confident? Well, they're not giving a bunch of offers. There's not a lot of plan B offers out there. We haven't seen that. So they obviously feel like they've got a good shot at some of these guys down the stretch and they're not going to have a whole bunch of scholarships left over. So, you know, they are recruiting the defensive line still, but it is those top guys, and it looks like they just feel like, hey, we need those top guys. We can't just bring in bodies just for the sake of bringing in bodies. Well, that's a great segue into this question from Gary in San Diego. He says, as the final week of recruiting winds down, USC obviously has some players on the list that are more desirable than others. How are the quote-unquote plan B guys handled? Do they tell Quentin Powell they – Want to hear what Matthew Thomas decides before accepting him? If Ashawn Robinson is still a consideration, do they tell him uh, they'd offer him only if Vanderdose goes somewhere else? Personally, I'd like to see USC end up with the Robinson twins, but their status must be pending two spots being available. Were they told that they would have to wait until February 6th before they could commit, or would USC accept their commitment now? That's from Gary and San Diego. I think the Robinson twins are most likely going to end up at Oregon, and I think... You know, and this is, again, where we're talking about ultimatums and, and you know, what's going to go on with Prevo. He's still taking visits, and that's got to make USC kind of second-guess, you know, where he is. I think with those guys, you, you just really, at the end of the day, I think it comes to, you know, first-come, first-serve basis. I, I don't know you can sit there and plan it out and say, well, look it, you know, we're going to go ahead and take your scholarship, uh, but that's only if this other guy doesn't commit. I kind of think it has to be whoever commits, commits. And, and that's just the way the facts has come in, and that's the way it shakes out. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a real dicey situation. And these are kind of the, the stories after signing day that you start to hear about as to how it shakes out and, and you know, who comes. And, and, you know, some of these things, there's, there's stories where kids are, you know, really trying to keep it low-key. And, and sometimes they keep it so low-key that the coaching staff themselves – the school that they want to commit to doesn't even know. I mean, they get faked out, and they're thinking, well, we don't got this kid. And all of a sudden, the kid's sending in a fax, and you're going, what the heck? 
I've heard stories like this. So it's a weird situation. It's hard to organize. I'm sure Lane Kiffin is doing his best to try to organize it, to try to get some feel. I mean, he's out on the road now doing his in-home visits. He's, you know, was uh, out with uh, Jason Hatcher just the other night. And, you know, Jason Hatcher recommitted. And I'm sure it was one of those things where they need to know now. You know, they need to know, Jason, <laughs> you know, are you going to go to Kentucky? Are you going to go to Louisville? Are you still going to take visits? Are you still going to him and ha? Because we really need to know what, how many spots that we have left and we've got other guys that are waiting uh, and, and it's just one of those weird things at the end of the day that um, they just you know have to kind of gamble a little bit on these guys and their word and I think with a guy like Jason Hatcher committing and, and you know his mom publicly stating yes he's going to go to USC that's big because it's just one of those things that you know put your cards on the table so USC knows they've got him and obviously you know, nothing's done until signing day, and there's still something that could happen. And, you know, last minute, you know, with, with maybe Louisville coming in for Hatcher or, or something crazy happening. But I think it's a little bit of, okay, you know, you have to kind of go with what mom is stating publicly and telling people publicly and trust her, and you just have to kind of go with that. But if there's somebody out there that doesn't want to say something publicly and, and doesn't want to kind of show their hand early on, it's tough for USC. You know, they, they, they just got to, like I said, kind of gamble on it. It's a crapshoot and just hope, okay, this kid's telling the truth. And on signing day, you don't get screwed. But as far as like the faxes, I don't think they're taking faxes and going, okay, we've got 19 faxes here. Who do we want to take out of these 19? I don't think it goes down like that. I think it's basically first time, first come first serve. And that's probably what they've conveyed to the recruits. Okay. Let's see. Um, next one. I can't remember. Where I read this, though, I think it was the War Room. That's on uscfootball.com. Uh, it was stated that there's been a possible change of heart regarding Abe Markowitz. Do you think that, uh, that that's a fallback position for the situation where we sign less than 17? Or do you think that might be coming around to the value of experience at the center position and an extra 2014 recruit? Well, I think you could probably answer that question pretty straight away, Ryan. Yeah, it's, it's probably a little better here. Um yeah, that, there was some talk about that in the war room, that there's more uh, discussion of what's going on. But the, the typical, I mean, I, I guess the way it comes down is now, is USC brought in all those early uh, commitment or early enrollees. And you can see them, uh, USC Athletics just tweeted out a picture of all those guys that are in there now. All those guys are taking up a scholarship right now. It means they're part of the 75. Each one of them had to take over a departing player scholarship who graduated mid-year, and they basically can leave their scholarship in the mid-year. Normally, you can't. If you leave the team as a sophomore, you still count on scholarship for the rest of the year. But if you graduate, and that's what happened with Abe Markowitz, he graduated and moved on, then you can use that spot for an early enrollee. He's basically using what, you know, the, the early enrollees, one of them is using Abe Markowitz's scholarship that counted for the first half of the year. And now this one will count all the way through the summer. All these guys come in early and be able to do that. It would have to be some kind of NCAA thing. Um, plus, you know, USC was is the one that would have to apply for a sixth year of eligibility. And USC wasn't willing to do that because they needed the scholarship offer there. Um, he would have to do it maybe somewhere else. So I think there's like an outside chance that you might see Abe Markowitz again. Um, but I certainly wouldn't bank on it or count on it. It's something basically with the NCAA would have to change. I think Dan Weber knows a little bit more about it, but that's the basics of, of what's going on here. Just scholarship number wise, his as a graduating departing player, he gives up a schol- his scholarship comes off the books in mid year, which is a rare thing to happen, and and allows a early enrollee to come in. Those spots are all filled. I mean that there was a lot of talk. If if there was one more guy that graduated, then Kylie Fitz could have got in too. But there wasn't enough room. So, yes, there's still no room for Abe Markowitz unless the NCAA does something strange. Wow. And you get on me for not being rapid fire? Okay. Hey, I had to explain it. It was good. Um, All right, then there's a follow-up. Also, do you find it odd that Oregon and many other places are filling their coaching vacancies? While we seem to be waiting until National uh, National Signing Day, what is the advantage of waiting? What do you think, Gerard? I think the only advantage is that you want to get the right coach in. Yeah. <laughs> I think after that, there's really not much of an advantage. Obviously, they're down, uh, you know, a spot on the coaching staff uh, when it comes to, you know, the total number of guys that they have out there recruiting on the road. 
um, because uh, Marvin Sanders is not there. Interestingly, actually thinking about it, I think they're actually down two full-time coaches on the staff because Monty Kiffin is gone, but that place was uh, taken by Clancy Pendergast. Uh, but you have Marvin Sanders, who's been let go, so he's no longer on the road. And you don't have Scotty Hazleton, the linebacker coach, on the road. So you actually have two spots that are dangling out there. And, and that's just two less guys that you can have going and speaking to guys and uh, getting in the in-home visits and, and actually going out and seeing some juniors also. That's another, something else that's going on right now is that there's a little bit of evaluation period going on with uh, checking in on some juniors that are out there. And so it's really not much of an advantage, to be honest with you. I, I think it hurts USC, and I think it spreads those coaches out that are on the staff uh, even further, and, and they have to work a little harder. Obviously, there's not a ton of guys that are still left on the board, um, so they're not going everywhere. Uh, but definitely, you know, it's one of those things that I'm sure if they had another body out there, it would be better. The only advantage is that Blake Kiffin wants to make the right hire, and he doesn't want to be rushed into it. And if you do it and you all of a sudden you don't like it, it's going to affect you on the field. And at the end of the day, we can talk about recruiting all along, but it's got to be how they play on the field and, and how many games they win next year. So in terms of getting the right coach, and a guy that, you know, obviously Clancy Pendergast feels is the right coach and feels like he can work with, um, that's maybe more important. It's definitely got to be a priority. So uh, I can understand that. That's, you know, something that you can appreciate as well as, you know, the the downside and not having another guy out there for the recruiting process. And Pat Hayden can go on the road now too because they are down a couple of coaches. But I think he said in a, a recent interview, he's uh, he was like over two last year <laughs> when he was on the road. So, um not that, you know, I'm not saying he's a bad recruiter, but he didn't really help bring anyone in last year. We'll see if he can help this year being on the road there. Uh, let's go to David Allen. He says, not including current verbals, what are the chances, which I know you love these questions, Gerard, <laughs> of USC signing a player who's not on the following list? So besides the guys that are already signed, there are already verbals. If not one of these guys... Who else could USC go after? Uh, Eddie Vanderdose, Kylie Fitz, Matthew Thomas, Quentin Powell, and A. Sean Robinson. That's from David Allen. Wow, uh, a percentage that they don't—they get somebody who's not on that list. Um, oof, that's hard. That's because you're also looking at: do they go after somebody else? You know, did they say, okay, we don't get Eddie Vanderdose, we're going to take another player? And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about with they, you know, Derek Callaway or a guy that's maybe a guy that's off the radar, Sean Harlow, um, you know, maybe even a Thomas Oster. You know, they go after another offensive lineman or do they go after another defensive lineman to to make up for losing alignment or not getting alignment? I should say uh, that's 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 including that's a good question because it's including the percentage of, you know, what I think they get. Uh, Eddie Vanderdose or not? <laughs> it's a kind of a back door to what do you think? What do you think the chances are they get all those guys? I I, I would say, ooh, I, I you know honestly I'd have to say sixty sixty five percent actually. I, I I think there is a good possibility that they grab somebody late, kind of like they did last year because they come up short with maybe one of those guys on that list. I think if they come up short on multiple guys, I don't see them just you know, sending out offers just to send offers. I, I don't think you're going to see, you know, that kind of uh, nervousness and, and kind of panic with, oh, we just got to get, you know, another guy in here. Um, but I could see it maybe with one guy, you know, possibly two. I, I think, you know, if they come up one short, there, there's a possibility they go after maybe somebody that uh, is maybe a lesser-known prospect but still a guy that they like, and, and maybe they feel like, hey, you know, the scholarship offer is going to be the thing that kind of turns them. You've got Thomas Duarte at Modern Day. He was a big SC fan. He's committed to UCLA. He was going to officially visit USC, wanted to officially visit USC, but UCLA put some pressure on him being a UCLA commit to, to stay there. And he didn't have a scholarship offer, so you can't blame him for not officially visiting USC without a scholarship offer. But if he was had a scholarship offer, you kind of wonder how that would change things. Same thing with Sean Harlow, who's the offensive lineman from San Clemente. I talked about him a little bit, um, you know, the son of Pat. Harlow, obviously with Trojan ties there, he was committed to Washington for a long time and decommitted from Washington is now committed to Oregon State. So, you know, USC has kind of taken guys away from Oregon State before, and Damian Shelton being that guy from last year, you know, maybe they can make a play at the last minute for him. It's just going to be one of those things. I mean, can USC close with every guy that they have left on their board who they want, or is there going to be a guy that comes up short, and if they come up short, you know, what's that pool of recruits that is left over uh, that they feel confident with and they feel like they can get in, and the guy that's still going to be able to contribute for them because you just don't want to get a guy just to get a guy. Okay. Uh, Yeah, you don't. 
you don't need uh, just bodies right now. Um, and the scholarship can carry over till next year, which will be the last one year and one week from today will be the last signing, the last class that USC signs with only 15 guys in it. So that'll be interesting. One more year left on that. And then obviously they play that, that following season at 75 scholarships. Um, here is Ron. Uh, he said, I'm a USC fan. Thinks it's incredible the way USC is recruiting at this stage of the game. If the sanctions were not unfairly put on USC, their class would probably be one of the best of all time. And to get seven already in school that are highly rated is unheard of. I really think that they will add a few more quality recruits on signing day and maybe some surprises. I hope Pat Hayden will soon speak out on how he really feels about the unfair sanctions. That's from Ron. Not really a question, but like a statement from I was going to say, <laughs> what's the question there? Yeah, that's a, I, I, I think he put it together well, though. Uh, good statement there from Ron. Um, Good statement. Don't don't terribly disagree with it. No, uh, I don't disagree either. Uh, Matthew, what is Clancy Pendergast's reputation as a recruiter, and what big fish has he reeled in in the past, which he was the main recruiter for? That's a good question. You know, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure who we all recruited when he was at Cal. From what I've gathered, very laid back. Um, not a guy that's, you know, over personality or kind of a character either way. Um, not necessarily a guy that's known for being a recruiter. Um, I haven't gotten that sense from anybody that uh, has worked with him or any of the kids that uh, he's recruited. Um, he does have a relationship with the kids up in Northern California, uh, obviously with, uh, you know, Michael Hutchings and Eddie Vanderdose. They both know him. I don't know that he really recruited them exclusively uh, so much as that they just knew him because they had gone down to unofficial visits to Cal. Uh, but what type of recruiter he is, I guess we're going to find out because he's really been put in a spot where he has to try to close uh, Jalen Ramsey. I think that's a specific recruitment um, that uh, with him taking on the defensive back coach responsibilities for USC as a defensive coordinator and you lose Marvin Sanders, it's really coming down to whether Jalen Ramsey feels comfortable with Clancy Pendergast and feels like that system is going to benefit him early next year because, let's face it, Jalen Ramsey's going to play next year. Um, he's going to play a lot next year. He's going to end up starting first game just with the situation USC's in. They have so much unproven talent um, at the cornerback uh, spot and guys that have been in the program for a while but haven't necessarily been consistent. I think you have next to Kevon Seymour – you really got a lot of guys that have just been injured and guys that have kind of been in and out of the lineup. And so uh, there's really got to be a lot of competition to be able to play uh, early on. And I, I think Ramsey, in terms of uh, a talent, in terms of, you know, just physical ability, uh, USC might want to roll with him like they roll with Mikel Roby as a true freshman. Um, so, you know, Pendergast has really got to be a guy that kind of closes that. And, and there's a lot of other defensive line uh, guys out there that, you know, he's going to have to have an impact on. I think it helps because you have Ed Erdron on the staff, and Ed Erdron is just kind of a, a, a recruiting machine onto himself. And so, you know, with Vanderdose, you know, you have Ed Erdron to help close that, but Pendergast is obviously going to be a big deal. Uh, but with the linebackers, it's going to be significant because there is no linebacker coach on staff right now. So Clancy Pendergast has to kind of speak for the linebacker coach as well. He's done that. He's been a linebacker coach in the past, so that's not a huge deal. Uh, but he's also going to be responsible for helping to close with Matthew Thomas and Quentin Powell. So we're going to see what kind of recruiter he is. You know, we're going to see if he's able to kind of talk to talk and walk to walk with the kids on these in-home visits, and then we'll have a better understanding of it. If USC comes up really short and they really strike out on, you know, four or five of these guys that they have left on the board, then obviously it's going to be an issue where you feel like, well, no, that certainly didn't benefit them hiring Pendergast from a recruiting standpoint uh, because, you know, some of these guys they maybe had a better shot at beforehand. So we're just going to see. You know, proof is going to be in the pudding on signing day. All right. Andrew in Thousand Oaks says, what's your take on the situation at linebacker? Do you think they would take both Matthew Thomas and Quentin Powell, or do they only have room for one additional linebacker? I imagine the change to the multiple hybrid front certainly points to them taking both if they can. That's Andrew in Thousand Oaks. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't see right now USC in a position to really turn anybody away. You know, I, I kind of, it's, it, they're really, you know, the guys that are left on the board is kind of how many spots they have left is, is what you're looking at. And obviously, you know, we're going to have to see what happens with Kylie Fitz down the road here. You know, he's officially visited Notre Dame. 
officially visited UCLA, so I'm sure he pretty much hates USC even more now than he did even before he decommitted uh, or after he decommitted, uh, that day he decommitted. So it was one of those things that, you know, we're going to have to see if he still unofficially visits USC, if USC is still even in the conversation uh, here in, in this, this next week coming up. Um, it's going to be, you know, interesting, obviously, to see what happens with Vanderdoes. There's a lot of guys there that close 50-50 guys, so... You know, it, it, to, to say that, you know, they're really they're going to take one of these guys over this guy or that guy, it's just too hard to project. And I think, you know, the way things play out, I don't know that they're really going to have to turn down anybody. I think that, uh, you know, hopefully, I think for USC, they have a good idea who they're getting on signing day and they feel, you know, confident in that, you know, kind of plays out the way they feel like it was going to play out. It's just so hard to tell. It's just so hard because these kids – there's so many people in their ear and there's so many different angles that, you know, they start looking at with schools. And, you know, last year it was, it was really Levitt Dower when they got Leonard Williams. I mean, there was a real possibility there on signing day, he was going to go ahead and go to Florida. And it was the Levitt Dower where uh, he had a conversation uh, with the USC coaching staff, as he puts it, and, and just decided, you know, I, I think I got to make that move and go to USC. And obviously it was huge for USC because he played so much last year and was such a big part of the defense last year. They don't get him and they don't get Ellis McCarthy and they don't get peeled that too. They, you start to wonder, you know, how, how's that going to play out for the USC defensive line just this last season, which, you know, they look pretty good. And, and people talk about the defense not coming up and not doing this, not doing that. Well, defensive line played pretty damn good last season. And going into last season, that was a big question mark. So it's a whole thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that you, you can feel really confident about something and they can turn out and, you know, turn on its head real quickly on you. Um, I, I don't think they're going to necessarily have to just, you know, turn around, turn away all these different guys and, and, and have to make those hard choices. Okay, let's go to Brian and Irvine. We've got a couple left. He says, how does Suell Cravens compare to the last couple of highly touted safety recruits that have played for USC, namely TJ McDonald and Taylor Mays? It seems like TJ and Taylor came in with all the same accolades, physical tools, and expectations that Sua is coming in with, but for some reason they never seem to develop into consistent, complete players. Was it the scheme that USC used, the coaching, or did they lack, did they lack some intangible area like instincts? Do you think Sua Cravens uh, can become a dominant, a more dominant player than both TJ and Taylor? I keep hearing he has excellent intangibles and instincts to go along with his measurables. That's Brian in Irvine. This is a, could be a very long answer, and I'll try to make it quick. Okay. Um, uh, Taylor Mays, I think, was not really comparable to Sua just because Taylor Mays was more of the physical specimen. He was more of a guy. I mean, he was a legit track guy, and you're talking about 6'3", 230-pound guys running 100 meters. And so he was just a little more of that physical specimen. And, and, you know, people forget he played really well for USC for a long time. It was really just his senior season that he didn't play well. Uh, but up until that point, you know, he was an All-American level guy that people just were in awe of because of his size and his speed and his ability to play safety at that size. With T.J. McDonald, I think he compares a little more with Sua Cravens. Um, I think with Sua, the awareness and the instincts are definitely something that you see a little more of. Um, I, I think he's a more of an opportunist, and he seems to be around the ball more, and that's just one of those things that I, I think that's instinctual. I think that's you know him being a student of the game. I wouldn't take that away from T.J. McDonald. He was also a student of the game, and he also played well for USC for a while. I mean, he, he had his good games, and he had some games where maybe he just wasn't as active and kind of disappeared. Was that the scheme? You know, was that one of those things that, you know, just last year with uh, the, the defense as a whole not seeming to communicate quite well and, and the secondary just not necessarily being quite as active and attacking, you know, it hurt him. I think he's one of those guys that was a great leader for USC, and I think he was a smart kid, and I, I think he was a physical player. Obviously, I think the NCAA and the Pac-12 refs kind of neutered him to some extent in his big hits, and he couldn't really make the impact on the game that he wanted. Sue is not a big hitter. He's not that guy that comes in is going to be a big, physical, intimidating type specimen type guy. He's big. He's strong. He's going to end up probably being 220, 225 pounds as a safety. But he's more of a guy that is a little more of a space eater. He's a little more of a guy that's looking for the ball. He's a little more of a ball hawk. And like I said, he's an opportunist. He's a guy that just gets his hands on the ball, whether it be a fumble or an interception. He just always seems to be the ball, around the ball that way. And I think um, in terms of what his ability is, uh, he's just a great overall football player. The one thing he has over both those guys, while Taylor Mays played as a running back and was a good running back, none of these guys compared to – 
Tua Cravens when it comes to the offensive side of the ball and their total production in high school just as a player both ways. Sua, great defense, done a great things on defense, but it's almost overshadowed by his amazing ability to play offense. And, to you know, one week he's playing running back and he'll get 100 yards, and the next week he's playing receiver and he's got six, six catches for 100 yards. I have not seen a guy – uh, as a defensive player who we've looked at and projected as a defensive player, have better hands than Sewell Cravens. I think the only guy that I would compare him to would be Patrick Peterson, a.k.a. Patrick Johnson, who we saw at uh, the Rising Stars camp and we saw as a senior kind of go through, and he played quarterback um, for his high school as a senior and was a guy who was a great high school player as an offensive player. But really, Sua skill-wise is just amazing in terms of him catching the ball and running the ball. And I think that in itself is something that's a big difference. And I think a big positive to him playing defense, being kind of a general on the field, that he knows offense and he understands what makes the offense click as well. I think that's something he definitely has over T.J. McDonald and Taylor Mays. All right, last one, Gerard. This is from Andrew. Up until the last couple of years, USC has always been known as a team that started off slow but finished strong. On the recruiting or on the recruiting trail, this last year, however, uh, we saw the stockpile of a lot of talent early, and now the momentum seems to be going against them. If you were USC's head coach, would you rather uh, beef a class up early or try to finish with a bang? I guess we're going to see on signing day. <laughs> it's kind of the, the 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 smartest way to answer that. Um, you know, it's funny because you know the recruiting class is kind of it's taken a little bit of the shape of the season where, you know, USC was ranked number one and there were preseason darlings for everybody. And you had uh, Matt Barkley as a Heisman trophy candidate. And then at the end of the season, you know, things started to fall apart a little bit. And a lot of people have looked at the recruiting class like that. Like they started off real strong and then they had some, you know, they had Max Redfield decommit along the way. And then they had a couple other decommits. Some of those decommits, I think they didn't really suffer so much. I think it was more a mutual parting of ways. So I think people read into that more than anything. We're going to see how they're able to close on signing day. Obviously, if they, you know, are not able to get, you know, three or four of these guys that they have left on the board, people are going to feel really disappointed and feel like it, the, the recruiting class kind of went exactly like the season went, um, even though it's still a great recruiting class when you look at it because of the early enrollees that you have on campus already going to be able to participate in spring ball. Uh, but, you know, whether the strategy to have those guys all commit early and trying to build that class up is a good one, you know, like I said, January is going to be January. No matter how many guys you have committed going to January, you're still going to have to recruit your ass off to make sure that you keep those guys. So a lot of those – coaches that have these programs and Pete Carroll did it. He kind of, you know, he would have a kind of a core class that he would have going in to December and January, but he would always have, you know, you know, six to eight spots where they left those guys, especially the out of state guys uh, to kind of make those decisions late in the process and be able to close strong in the process. There's a PR advantage to it also that, you know, on signing day, everybody's watching on signing day and to be, a school that has a big presence on signing day with uh, signing multiple guys always looks good and it kind of has that resonating feel to it. Um, whereas USC is kind of, they're just trying to defend basically their recruiting class at this point. You know, I think they just get the guys that they had committed. They've got a great class. They might have the number one class in the nation if you just get the guys that they had committed. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's definitely different. And I, I think at the end of the day, if it goes well for them on signing day, you look at it and you go, you know, if they would have had a good season, this would have been a much easier way to recruit than to leave it all to basically January and December. But if they don't and they don't close well, then you go, you know, that's why you got to really kind of go uh, at the back end and, and kind of leave some spots open and not have all those guys committed and just recruit them and try to close with them on January. It, it, it's open-ended because we haven't seen really how it's played out here with this class and this strategy that they've taken this year. Yeah, I think you're right. The, uh, I mean, just having – the kind of season that they had, it certainly put them behind the eight ball a little bit, and you're playing catch up. Um, but just to, to note, when they were ranked number one and had the uh, the top ranked class, there was 18 commits at the time, and as we know now, that really wasn't feasible. Like one of those guys would have had to decommit anyway. Um, there was 18 verbal commitments on there, and as we understand it now, they're they're going to take or take up to. 17, not including, you know, Darius Rogers, who's, you know, one of those early guys that was originally with the class of 2012. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that you could also make the argument 
that the only reason they have this great class now is because they had those guys commit early on. They built a bond and they stuck together throughout the season and they became closer through the season. So although USC has suffered some losses, they haven't been, you know, catastrophic losses. And the only reason they're in it for so many guys still is because they built those relationships and they had those guys committed guys like Eddie Vanderdose, guys like Kylie Fitz. And Kylie Fitz situation is unique in and of itself. I mean, he's still committed if he's able to be an early enrollee and that thing works out the way it was planned. So, you know, even that situation is a little unique in and of itself. It's hard to know, you know, that the season you just hope for a USC fan that that was, you know, kind of a little bit of a, a an off thing. That's not, you know, how it normally is going to happen for them. Um, you know, strategy-wise, I'm sure Lane Kiffin didn't expect or anticipate, you know, to have a 7-6 and six season and to have things go the way they have. Uh, but at this point, I mean, you're talking about a school that's had six losses. They could end up having eight five-star commits. That's unheard of. Yeah. You, you, to, to match your losses with your five-star commits is completely like an oxymoron, even with recruiting. So, I mean, you, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you can still have a great recruiting class, even missing on a few guys. And you can make that argument. Well, the only reason that happened is because they had those guys committed in the first place. And that bond was made so early on. Whereas if you didn't have those guys committed, you know, maybe they're not even in on them. Maybe those guys are like, you know what? I'm not even going to visit USC anymore. I never promised them I was going to visit. You know, we, I was, a, I was a guy that was a silent commit and we, and I really liked USC, but now they've had this season, you know, Jalen Ramsey doesn't commit in July. Maybe at some point during the season, he says, eh, I'm, I'm, I don't have any commitment to USC. I don't have any bond with USC. I mean, yeah, I went there during the summer and I liked it a while, but I never was a public commitment. So it makes it a lot easier for him to go ahead and look at other schools. And all of a sudden he kind of puts that effort in that relationship uh, that he's trying to build with these people at different schools into a school besides USC. So it, you can make all these arguments every which way. It's tough. I think at the end of the day, we just have to let it play out and kind of see what happens on signing day. If there's just this catastrophic meltdown, it, then you kind of go, yeah, it probably didn't go well. I mean, they, you know, USC was out there with these guys committed and it was just, you know, all these schools lining up and negatively recruiting, knowing that, hey, USC is a school to beat for Ramsey. You know, all the way through through the whole season, they knew USC was up there with him committed, and it's just take your shots at USC to try to get him away from USC. Then we can start recruiting against each other to be able to see who gets them. Um, so we'll see, you know, uh, what happens. All right. Well, Gerard, great stuff. Appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, definitely check out uscfootball.com. He's on the Peristyle all the time posting little tidbits of information on what's going on and stuff like that. So thanks again, Gerard. And uh, one more week till signing day, then you can, well, I don't know if you're going to take a vacation, but maybe, maybe take a little time off. Yeah. One, you know, one more week till signing day. And then after signing day, we'll do our class breakdown and class grades. And then we'll start to update uh, each player and, and uh, his enrollment and uh, kind of the future of what's going on. And then I guess what we have uh, spring ball. So <laughs> junior day, there's never, there's never an end to it. No, never a dull moment, but it's going to be going to be a crazy last week. Definitely check out uscfootball.com for all the latest information. Thanks again, Gerard, and everyone else. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We'll see you on Monday for the regular edition of the Peristyle Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.